Hello folks this is Watchstar podcast series where we talk to the top class achievers in tech and take a peek at the secrets to their excellence Hello folks welcome to the Watchstar podcast series where we talk to the top class achievers in tech I'm your host Manoj Rao and today my guest is Steven Rosted. Steve is a Linux kernel developer and he's one of the most prolific contributors in the Linux kernel community. He's the author of Ftrace, Trace Command, Kernel Shark, Ktest, Local Mod Config. He's also a key contributor to Linux's real-time scheduler. Given that Steve's work touches on very complex parts of the Linux kernel, we talked about how to be realistic about building a massive code base used and tested by literally billions of people around the world. We talked about his background, how he got into programming, what his system is uh, to be so hyper productive. Uh, we got into his habits, routines, productivity hacks and much much more. It was an absolute pleasure talking to him. His energy is so contagious. I hope it comes through on this episode. I learned a lot just talking to him uh, for this podcast. Irrespective of where your skill levels are, I know you will take away a lot from this conversation too. So, let's welcome Steve Rosted. Hi Steve, welcome. Thank you so much for obliging my sure. request. And Steve has been an active Linux kernel contributor and just like I introduced before the show started, Steve is here with us and let's get right into it. Uh Steve, if you ran into somebody at a party and they asked you what you did for a living, how do you introduce yourself? Well, is a party a technical party or is it a non-technical party? Let's start with non-technical and then get into technical. I just tell them I'm a programmer. Okay. And leave it at that. Okay, fair enough. And technical Well, technical, then I say I'm a Linux call. Ask them if you ever heard of Linux. And if they say yes, well, I'm actually one of Linux call developers. Okay. Um, but yeah, that's, and if they say no, I'm like, okay, do you have an Android phone? <laughs> like, well, I have code in there. Okay. Fair I try to do that non-technical sometimes too. <laughs> do you try to tell them what real time is or what F-Trace is or what, what one of those innumerable number of projects that you have worked on? Only if they ask. I don't sort of push <laughs> that out and say it. Okay. Fair enough. We'll get into some of these details uh, pretty sure. soon, but just tell us, like, what got you into programming? How did you start? For programming itself, I think I fell in love with programming in around ninth grade. I took a course, maybe even before that. I liked playing with computers. My uh, uh, father was IBM manager. He actually was a programmer back when. In fact, he moved to Endicott, New York, uh, from Rochester the year I was born, and that's because for IBM working there for. Here's a fun fact. Endicott, New York, which is a small little town outside of Binghamton, New York, uh, which is also a small, very little small city, is quite significant uh, in history of computer science. And that's because, here's the trivial, IBM Plant 1 is at Endicott, New York. That's where IBM actually started. Thomas oh. J. Watson lived in Endicott. Uh-huh. So uh, it used to be very, very big. And I'll, I'll throw this out. I've always tell people this, that you know, when I went to college, people used to tell me that I'm a suburb of Binghamton from Endicott. I said, no, if Binghamton were to disappear off the face of the, of the earth, we wouldn't notice. It's kind of sad to say, but, you know, but I said, if IBM were to disappear off the face of the earth, we'd be a ghost town. And then sadly, unfortunately, in the 90s, they started laying off people and they pretty much are, there's like a hundred people I think they employ from like several thousand to now just a few hundred. All their buildings are basically rented out to, or owned by someone else and rented. Although the building cement, uh, as actually, if you go to Google Street View and go to Endicott and look at their buildings, You can actually see on the side of the building the original logo of IBM, which is not the three letters IBM. Uh-huh. It's actually a circular, world, globe-like shape 
where it says international business oh, machines. Nice. It's right in the cement on the building. And you can actually still see that from Google View. Oh, nice. Okay. Uh, I'll definitely look that up and put it up in the show notes if I find it. Otherwise, I'll, yes. I'll, I'll contact you. So uh, you said you started off pretty early. So what was your first machine like or what was your first programming language like? Actually, okay. I have to say before ninth grade because I remember my first program I ever wrote was actually in seventh grade. But computers were very new. Okay. I, I'm, I'm rather older than most people, I guess, around here. And uh, I think it was in the early 80s, I got a Timex, Timex Sinclair 1000. It's like this little computer that had like push buttons for like, it was like plastic bubbles for your keyboard. I think it had 8K of memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had this big backpack you could attach to it to give you 16K of memory. Mm-hmm. The hard drive consisted of a tape deck player that you put cassette tapes in and you hit record. You actually had to hit the play and record to actually record a program on it. And then if you wanted to play that program, you actually had to press play uh-huh. on the normal, it's a normal regular cassette player. You just hooked to it. I did little sketching of maps and stuff like that within, I mean, just to play, hey, I'm writing code. It was kind of fun. I I can't remember what the uh, language was in. It was a really, very basic, basic. It wasn't even normal basic. I don't don't remember what the language was. Um, I'm sure if I had any cassettes, I'd probably have nothing to read it with. Um, (laughs) Anyway, uh, that was where I started. I actually felt, and then in ninth grade, it was when I had my first official course, and it was Pascal. And I said right there, I was like, no, I'm going to be a computer programmer. Um, nice. Up. Yeah. Nice. And so, how did you uh, stumble upon or get into the world of Linux community and Linux programming? Were you like, you know, uh, how how soon after Linux released its first version were you around to pick it up? Uh, I've actually it? given this an interview before, but not not an audio interview. I've given this. Uh, I think Libby Clark, who's a Linux Foundation person, gave an interview, and I mentioned this as well. And that um, it happened. Uh, so my history is I worked for contractors. Um, I worked at GE for federal systems that I went to after that. I went to IBM Federal Systems, and this is all in the Endicott area, Weagle area, but um, then I worked for Lockheed Martin, or Laurel, that became Lockheed Martin. And I worked on Sun Microsystems, I worked on AIX and uh, and VAX, uh, but I really liked the Unix systems. I was like, this is kind of nice, but I was actually trying to get away from Unix because I saw, I was in the military, um, you know, the federal systems, working on C-17 aircraft and stuff like that, uh, Warthog and the, the things, and I wanted to get out of the military. I wanted to get into commercial and I saw commercial was all on windows. So finally there's a windows project and I pushed very hard to get jumpy on it. So I started developing on windows and I spent three days debugging something that ended up being a bug in the debugger. And I was so frustrated. I basically yelled at the top of my lungs. And this is in 1996. I think around, it was in the summer of 1996. I don't know exactly what month it was, but I yelled very frustrated uh, in my cubicle darn it, can't they make a Unix for the PC? Mm. And this intern sitting next to me looks at me and goes, have you ever heard of Linux? Mm. It was 1996, so 91, so five years later, um, was my first hearing of Linux. And actually, it's not technically true. I actually read about it before, but I didn't put any too much thought on it. I was focused on other things. So I went in, I downloaded my 13 floppies of Slackware, <laughs> And installed it. I couldn't get the video card working, but I was able to do run Bash and everything on my computer at home. And I was just like, this is awesome. And mm. I needed, so I actually worked very, very hard to get it incorporated into my job mm. at Lockheed Martin. Nice. Nice. So, and you just, you just played around with it. You wanted to do what, what you wanted to accomplish. And you, um, was there like a specific aspect of the Linux kernel that attracted you to it? Or was it just... 
like, hey, this is a free thing or this is an open thing. Let's let's just play with it. Well, actually, well, the first thing, uh, the license really floored me. It was, um, well, I remember actually someone's handed me a Red Hat floppy a little after. Well, not a floppy, but actually a CD. I said, hey, here's a Red Hat CD. And I was looking at the license on it and said most, and it had this little blurb that said, most licenses tell you not to share this software. You know, this is going to restrict you and all this. Our licenses, no, we want you to give this away and give it as many people as possible. And mm-hmm. I was like, wow, this is awesome. And then I was curious, but at the time I was more application developer and I've always, I, I hated unknowns, which is actually probably describes some of my work in F-Trace and everything, but I hated unknowns. I, I hated an application. If I to- typed printf, I'm like, okay, how did printf work? So then I would go look at the C library. And now there's, you know, glibc. So I would look at the libc library to see how printf and what did it do and and actually, my first patch in open source was not a Linux kernel patch. It was actually a patch to GTK. Oh, GTK interesting. One. In fact, actually, I even helped uh, the GTK spreadsheet. I, uh, I can't remember what the name of it is, but I think my name is still in the code there somewhere nice. for some helping of development. So I, I was like, ooh, you know, I was interested in how X worked, you know, the X window interface. And I looked at that source code. So I kept going a little further and getting deeper and deeper. And when I, and, you know, after I understood how, you know, libc worked, then I saw sys read, you know, sys open, sys reads, sys writes, sys close. I'm like, or the, the system calls. I'm like, well, how does the kernel do it? So then I started looking into the kernel and I started just reading the source code and follow, trying to follow along doing grep and stuff like that. Like, where, like, you know, you'll get function pointers and you're like, okay, I'm stuck. Now where does this go? And, and, um, I do, well, I'm like, oh, there's this thing called print K. I'm like, oh, there's actually a print K. I can actually see stuff. So I started putting a little print case here and there. And actually I found a bug. It was off by one error. Like I think it was like either a greater than was supposed to be equal or equal was supposed to be a greater or you no know, greater or equal was supposed to be greater than or or was just greater than was supposed to be greater than equal. And I submitted a patch and it got accepted. I was like, wow, this is awesome. You know, it, it was mm. just a simple patch. I didn't know anything what was going on. Mm. Um, so I just my curiosity about it just became more intense. I just started, you know, reading the code and trying to figure it out. I mean, I knew operating system. I had to work with uh, VXWorks um, a little bit, so I knew like how operating systems work and stuff. Mm-hmm. So. This was, uh, uh, I had the background knowledge to understand the concepts. I just wanted to see the implementation. Fair enough. That's um, awesome. I mean, we'll, we'll definitely try and go into all the various projects you've, you've touched upon. You've also done a bit with, uh, with tracing, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit. You know, so you, you just kept looking further and further into the kernel's operations and how things worked in the Linux oh. uh, open source, and then eventually probably ended up uh, on the deepest side of the pool. Which is like at, at a, for for the longest time was tracing and you know uh, the real time aspect of the kernel. Okay, well the real time kind of came in because, um, like I said, I was working in federal systems, and whenever you're doing military work, they're very big on real time operating systems. You know, mm-hmm. we do QNX, um, you know, VXWorks and such. And um, Linux wasn't there for anything. We and I, I even went to I even got my Lockheed Martin to pay for me to go to the first Linux World mm-hmm. in 1998. I have a picture of me and Linus. Uh, mm-hmm. I ran into him and I got a picture of him. And, uh, it's, that was kind of a funny story there. Mm-hmm. But I went there looking for our RT version. And they, that's when you had, at the time, the RT Linux, which mm-hmm. is the microkernel. And um, I can't remember the guy's name uh, that did it. You start to have a Y or something. Anyway, Victor Yorgosoft or something. I don't know. I'm sure you can look it up and find it. But uh, I actually even ran into him and I got to talk to him a little bit. But it wasn't really something that satisfied us. But the thing is, when kernel development, where I got to that, where that came from is uh, I was going for my master's degree uh, because 
my manager wanted me to get a master's degree so I could be work on this project. So he said, go, she told me to go, go, go back to school. So mm-hmm. I go back to school. And one of my classes was to change the uh, TCP IP stack in the Linux 2.2 kernel to is from a send acknowledgement to a credit negative acknowledgement protocol. The reason why it was just, it was more of an academic thing, but actually even today there's research papers on this because it's much faster because TCP is made for unreliable networks and it really is horribly uh, in performance in reliable networks. Mm. And most people have reliable networks. I mean, basically if you have two, like, you know, your house is set up, you have a, a switch or something and hooking there, everything's reliable. You don't have to worry about, you know, most people in their homes have a bunch of machines that talk to each other and they, they don't have to worry about packets coming in out of order mm. because that only happens when you're doing routing and people, most people don't have routing. So you could actually change the protocol to be specific for, uh, you know, uh, optimal, optimized for that type of network. Right. And it will blow TCP IP out of the way. And, and I, this was my first real project as a kernel developer was actually in this course. Oh, And that's actually where I fell in love with kernel programming. I said, this is awesome. I, full, I felt like I had 100% full control of the machine that I owned. Hmm. I could make the machine do anything I wanted. Hmm. I have to, didn't have to worry about anyone else being in the middleman. Because hmm. uh, it gets rid of the minimum. The kernel talks directly to the machine. Right. You, like with Windows or something like that. Uh, I hated Windows. I hated Apple uh, OS because it was like this, um, it babied you. It didn't let you have full control of your machine. And, right. Uh, that always bothered me. Right. Yeah. And for the longest time, uh, until then, basically open source was almost like not a, not right. a thing. I mean, it was not even, there's no community. Nobody knew about it. Everybody was borderline. It was just about limited to academia and students just sharing yeah. and monkeying well, around. And there was, yeah, Most you're right. Academic. It was mostly academic. And actually, I tried pushing. I did, I uh, was it basically evangelical open source missionary uh, there because I actually pushed Linux within Lockheed Martin. I gave a talk at Lockheed Martin. That was my first talk, open source talk I ever gave was actually at Lockheed Martin. Nice. Uh, internal. It was just, uh, it was 98 when Linux started hitting the newspapers. And my ta- topic was, you know, Linux, what is it? Hmm. And uh, I got huge turnout. People wanted to know what this was. So I talked about the GPL. I talked about Linux and I talked about GNU and people like Richard Stallman and such. And that came, was really well. But actually, I don't think I answered my, your question too was about tracing. Like, how did I get into right. that tracing idea? Right. Well, in the one problem is doing this debugging. And also, I ended up my, my master's thesis was about a quality of service and networking. Mm-hmm. And to debug the network code, I found printk was very lacking because mm-hmm. having when you're doing high well, all these packets coming in having a print k is extremely extremely slow and you could actually crash the machine if you right. lock it up because all all the machines now doing is print k and doesn't do anything else and back then every, no one had a you know, multi-processor machine it was a single processor so if the processor is locked up doing one thing your machine just stops right so i created a internal memory buffer and then i it was this thing called log dev it was a log device that i called it so you could hook it so it create a character device that and i had user space tools that would hook to it and be able to read it. And actually that was the predecessor to what eventually became F-Trace. Hmm. So this is actually, because it's funny part, I created this for uh, my math, or for my that class. I used it for my master's thesis. Then at Lockheed, there's this job that opened up at, well, one of the fellows at Lockheed Martin had a friend in Carnegie Mellon that started a company called TimeSys. Hmm. That's a real-time Linux uh, company. Uh-huh. And he didn't want to move from the Binghamton area, so he created an office. And he hired, well, I actually begged to get, I mean, I really did push to get to this. Because I, well, my friends who were also within Lockheed Martin that were Linux advocates, we kind of found each other. And they got the jobs there, and I'm like, yeah, get me on this job. And it was really hard because professionally, I professionally I had no kernel 
real ex- kernel experience. I only had user space experience. So my resume was filled with this, even though my academic had kernel stuff. So they were very reluctant to hire me, but so they, but they finally did. They, my friends talked them into doing it and uh, they said they were happy hiring me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I jumped on this and I brought log dev with me. So I then ported it from the 2.2 kernel to the 2.4 kernel, eventually got to the 2.6 kernel. Mm-hmm. And I kept forward porting this and, you know, long story, I'm not going to go through, unless you ask for this, but my whole history to how I got to Red Hat. And when I was working for Red Hat, I, my first job at Red Hat was actually working on the Zen code. Ah, nice. I even ported this log dev device that I had from school for tracing onto the Zen hypervisor. Nice. I mean, that was way ahead of its time, I thought, at that point. When it first yeah. came out, a lot of people were just still busy trying to get their heads around what was going on with Zen, what it was, yeah. and, and well, what was hypervisor. This was 2006 right. when I started. Right. And now, now virtualization is literally... Oh, a new company, I don't know if you or saying this or not, but yeah, no, I, I just left Red Hat and now I work for VMware. Uh, yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll add I'll add all the details of your background definitely in the show notes. Yes, so you tracing basically for for those who don't use uh, Ftrace and Linux, uh, it's it's a boon. Uh, of course, it's constantly evolving into something newer and better. Uh, but Ftrace is for for kernel developers. Every kernel developer will swear by it. Uh, Beyond a certain point, Trinket takes you only so far, uh, but tracing is, is just phenomenal. It helps you get a way better insight into the problems that you're dealing with in kernel. And there are lots of good LWN uh, articles, Linux Weekly News articles, uh, that you can go ahead and I'll add them in the show notes, all the relevant ones. Okay, now coming back to your personal preference and, and so on, I wanted to shift, shift the gear a bit. As a kernel developer who's, who's extremely present and available on the, you know, on various uh, mailing threads, uh, mailing lists rather, you get like, you get inundated with, with email. I mean, just looking at the number of emails that address you on the list alone, <laughs> it looks overwhelming to me. I stopped. I used to read LKML directly. Right. I used to read, I remember when I was at uh, Siemens in Germany, working as a contractor or after my time since I went there, I used to get up in the morning and read all my uh uh, LKML email in using Pine at the time, uh, <laughs> which is Alpine now. Yeah. But um, that's what I used for it. And I would actually read, I, I would spend an hour every morning mm-hmm. or maybe an hour, two hours, just just come in and just read every single email. I mean, a lot of times I just read the subject. I'm like, okay, I don't care about this. Era. And I'll skim through it and then I'll just go to the next. Today, I can't keep up with my CC. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's It's basically impossible. Yeah, so... What are the, I wanted to see, what, how do you deal with email flood? What are your techniques? What is your workflow like for emails? I will admit it's not the best. Um, I have, I use Clause Mail mm-hmm. as my main mailer. Uh, I have MUT for LKML. I, when I look at LKML, I use MUT. But for my everyday mail, and I have everything go to my inbox. Mm-hmm. And right now I have 13,000 unread emails mm-hmm. that I'm trying to go through and do. And the way I work at it is I, I hit my inbox from two directions. Um, I actually go from uh, most recent back in time, and then I also go back, which is right now a few months away, hmm. and then slowly go in. Sometimes that window gets bigger and sometimes smaller, and my worst, I've actually applied a patch that was, I think, just over a year old once huh. because I hit it on the way back. I went, oh, uh, wait, this, I missed this on, on the way in. Did so, it apply cleanly? Was, was, uh, did it apply cleanly? Yeah. Okay. No, no, no. Did it? 
Oh yeah, because it was basically well, it might not apply to cleanly, but it was the change was still there. Okay, it yeah, it was, it was like, still relevant. It was a very small fix. And okay, it was I think another off by one issue. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is a simple fix. This should go in. And I think it was even a stable release. I mean, I pushed it to stable. Nice. But though I go from two directions, and I've always tell people the hardest time is if you send an email like at this time. If mm-hmm. you if I get email now, it's most likely be be lost in my flood because I'm traveling. I'm here in uh, L.A. In two weeks, I'll be in Paris. Hmm. Uh, a couple more weeks after that, uh, I'm going to be in Prague. Hmm. Uh, and then at the end of the month, we're in, we're then going to be in, back in Palo Alto, and then I'm going to be in Munich before the end of the year. And when I'm traveling, it's the hardest time because I'm usually doing one-on-one, face-to-face. I, I, it's my only time. I work from home remote, so I don't get the, the interaction with people. So I get more involved with physical contact with yeah. talking to people, and I start not looking at my email. Right. And when I get home, I'll try to go, I'll skim through it. Because it's so much in there. Well, it's a lot of it is, you know, also just things like CC. I'm like, yeah, I don't need this. I don't need to be this. And I just skim really quick through it. And I miss emails all the time that I really should have paid attention to. And I always try to tell people who send me an email, if I don't reply to you, it's not because I'm ignoring you. I'm not. I mean, it's just send a, I say, ping me. Reply to that email you sent me. Because the way my email is set up, anytime that it's always... The newest reply. So if there's a huge thread, if someone replies to a thread, because it could be a year old, if mm-hmm. someone replies to that thread, it becomes my up in the front. Right. So it's, and then remember, I, I tacked that mail from the newest to latest and then back to later. I don't delete any, I, don't, I never go just delete email. So uh, if I don't get to it, I may get to it in six months. Hmm. So it's not me forgetting it or thinking it's not important. So I trust him and I feel bad because someone, because I had people reply, oh, I know you're too busy. I'm like, no, that was a patch I should have applied. I just lost it in the, in the email flood. So I tell people, please send a ping. Uh, oh, but don't, no, don't send a ping one day. Send it in a week. Hmm. And a lot of times I'll tell people if I do get, find something while I'm traveling, I will send it. I'll just reply to them and say, I'm traveling right now. Could you just send a CC because I'll forget this email. I'm going to forget right. this email. Right. Even though it's like, hey, this is very important. Um, so that it at least slides up a little. Uh, yes. I said, if you don't hear from me within a week, reply again. It's usually one week is what I tell, tell people. And besides all this, you do have a full-time job at VMware. And oh. I'm pretty sure there's, there's no shortage of emails there. No, actually, um, it's not as bad as you would think. I mean, more, when I was at Red Hat, it was probably more of an issue there. Uh, one reason why I got hired for VMware is to uh, help change VMware to be a more open-source-friendly company. Nice. Dirk Handel, who was the one that, I guess, uh, created the Open Source Technology Center in Intel, mm-hmm. uh, has been brought over to VMware to help, you know, change the how the company is, how it's perceived, how it is inside. Uh, so that's part of my job as well, is to help there. But he told me when I got hired, 80% of my time is upstream. So I'm actually pretty much almost full-time doing just upstream work. That's nice. 20% is I have to come back and try to work back and get involved in the company try to interact with people. And once I get interaction, then I can help people understand open source better and stuff like that. But I have to get involved. So one day a week, I guess I should spend full time mm-hmm. back in the company. But uh, my my problem though, isn't the fact that the full-time job is the fact that I'm on so many projects that each right. one could be a full-time job on their own. Right, exactly. For sure. I mean, uh, RT alone is so deep. Linux RT alone is yeah. is is mind, mind-blowingly mm-hmm. deep. Uh, in, in each problem that you come across and just uh, attending these micro-conferences. <laughs> and the talks recently just, you know, blew my mind. It takes enormous amount of focus and time to get through different issues. Uh, so do you lead a 
team of kernel engineers or is it just mostly you doing the upstream work? How does it work? So the upstream work, um, I, always, I, I use this terminology and it's, some people told me that's it's inappropriate. Uh, but I always say I, I could use minions. Hmm. Uh, we used to joke because when at Red Hat, we used to call each other minions or like if someone's helped someone else, like, oh, you're my minion. You know, mm-hmm. We jokingly did that. And uh, I guess uh, that's not always a, appropriate in everywhere. Everyone, you'll use that terminology because people, some people could be offended by it. Uh, but I said I'm so-and-so's minion. So it's like I'm a minion to someone. And that's basically it. But ideally, uh, what I'm looking for is uh, people that can help me. If you have patches and stuff like that, I don't really have a team, but there's people that work with me. I mean, like for tracing, one of the one of the people, I have, and I, I keep saying this, and this is something I haven't officially done yet, but, but Masami Hiramatsu, who's here too, um, he's the K-Probe uh, author. Mm. He's done a lot of work on F-Trace as well, and I want him to be like the tracing maintainer. Like him and I share a repo, and that you could send him a patch, and he'd be able to apply things too. Um, and I got to get my test suite up and running so I could give it. I mean, I have a test suite at home, but it's, it's not something I could share yet because it has like hard coded IP addresses and stuff like that on the, mm. in, in the, in the scripts and such. So I, I need to clean that up and make it more generic so I can pass it off to people. But Masami Hiramatsu could help me on this. Um, it would kind of have some of the load off of that, but it's mostly, I'm mostly working with other maintainers as well. Uh, so the work I do is usually mostly on my own. I, I have like, I want to do this and I, I do this and every so often someone will do work and I'm like, Oh, that was on my to do list. This is awesome. Uh, just recently, um, Tom Sanusi from Intel uh, posted a, I think, 40 patch series of uh, tracing histograms. And uh, this is something I'm quite excited about. I'm hoping to get into the next, mer- not this merge window, it's still open, but it's not going to happen here. But for the next merge window, I'm hoping to get that code in there because uh, it's a nice new feature. So there's a lot of times I'm actually doing a lot more review of other people's code and not always writing my own. And the problem is when I start focusing on writing my own code, I start blocking everything else out. Hmm. And when you so I haven't really been doing much with the RT stuff anymore, except for maintaining stable and look, reviewing other people's patches. Uh, uh, every time I go and focus on RT, then I'm going, I basically lose out on F-Trace. Uh, there's kernel command, or the no, trace command that, and trace kernel command, shark. Trace MD, yeah. um, I want trace. Um, actually, we have someone in VMware. Um, I got an employee uh, in Bulgaria to actually work on kernel shark. Nice, nice. And his first task is to convert it from GTK to QT. Hmm. Uh, and the reason why is because it was written up for GTK2, and I didn't feel like porting it over to G- GTK3. But like I said, my first patch was GTK. That's why I actually I, I chose GTK. Uh, but I'm I find I believe that QT is a little bit more stable and it's a, you know long term hmm. um, ABI or, AB, or API. And I'm afraid that by the time I get everything ported to GTK or yeah GTK3, GTK4 will come out and I have to rewrite and do start all over again. So. Right. That's why, but I got someone else working on that. So I can kind of focus on the utilities for trace command to work with F-Trace and there's more stuff in F-Trace I want to do. Right. Okay. I mean, um, I, I use trace CMD all the time, especially when you have to run F-Trace for longer periods of time. It's just a boon. Um, you collect the binary data, you just take it off uh, to the host, especially because I work with devices mostly and uh, you know, quickly device memory will get filled up if you're using F-Trace, even if you, yep. if you try to minimize the amount of data um, and f- using Funcraft. We could go all day with this. Yes. Okay, but coming back to you, one thing is community, Linux community is, is just filled with uh, some of the smartest people across the world working for whatever their own uh, motivations are. 
sometimes you know just out of curiosity sometimes for work etc but one thing that is common is you have to gain their trust first up you know you have to have a you have to show enough work to get into people's network of trust so that when they see patches from a person they they say immediately they think like okay i can trust this guy's patch it may not be the best version of what this person can do but you know sometimes they'll have to go over but at least it's more like a network of trust is what i see so is what what else do you think or what do you think attracts people what in your opinion or in your experience well wait a minute what pe- attracts people to the kernel or to the community well, right? to the community i mean maybe it is partially because now linux is very kind of popular and it's some people think it's the you know it's like the open source project because uh, a lot of times when you think of open source the biggest project of open source is linux kernel it's, yeah, it's almost, become the poster child for open yeah, source it's the I mean, it's you have Linux Foundation that's uh, you know all over the world. You know, Google runs it, Android runs it. You know, Facebook, Amazon, just go on and on and on about what runs Linux. And a lot of I mean, I think it's partly like, wow, that's the thing to be in, and that's, so that's the community uh, thing. But talking about trust, it's not just patches. Uh, in fact, actually, even not the best quality patches. It's how you interact with the community. It's the interaction of those patches that are, that surrounds the patches, and not the patches themselves. Mm. We've always said code talks. So I've seen really good patches come by and never get accepted. And it was very simple. This is something I learned by the RT patch. What we did with the RT patch, when I first, I started working on the, the real-time patch, doing various developments. And this is actually actually how I got trust with Ingo Molnar, hmm. uh, who was the one who kind of started the uh, preempt RT patch. Uh, and then Thomas Gleichner took over. And I started working with them in 2004 and I sent patches and. I found a new way of doing, or I was able to, uh, I implemented this uh, locks pending owner, lock stealing algorithm, which is still actually still in the kernel today in the RT mutex code. Um, I won't go into the details of that code, but when I first did it, it actually triggered a lot of bugs in Ingle's code. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, but, or, and not just Ingle's, but you know, in his repository, but he, but it only, the bugs were only triggered when my code was attached. Right. So he reverted it. And told me this bug is this thing called this bug. So I would go back and say, no, I just actually opened up a race window for your bug or for this bug in the, your, the code that you guys own. And I fixed their bug. Hmm. And then I would set it back. And in a little while, they'd find another case where I say, oh, it's broken again. I would go back and say, no, it's not my code. It's, it's you know, your code again. And I, this happened like three or four times. And finally, after a while, uh, he, you know, Ingo had this defined switch to so turn off. Instead of reverting the patch, he just turned it like, all the <laughs> if deft out. And finally, after like, you know, months later, I finally go, Ingle, you know, you've had all these bugs and it never proved to be my code. Could you take out the if def there and just let's run it? And eventually, but the big thing is actually I found a way to redo the uh, locking of the priority inheritance uh, because before it was a single lock and I was able to spread it off per CPU. And this is the first time, that, you know, Ingle at the time had a eight CPU box, which is huge at the time, this mm-hmm. is like 2005. And I wrote over two days, I wrote this code and I said, here, Ingle, try this. And it sped up his box by 300 times, nice. 300x, wow, or something like that. I, mean, I don't know. I don't think it was 300. Yeah, it was like huge. I mean, it just it, before because it, it used to be exponentially slower. So hmm. when you did everything, so it, things got slower on more CPUs you get. But once I did this, it went linear, kind of. The, That's the because line. there was a central bottleneck. Uh, on yeah, one it was of the a CPUs single because I got rid of the global lock. Right. It got rid of it, and right. so everything, all the CPUs had were serialized. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then I got rid of that, and things just flew. And he's like, "Wow, you finally actually made 
the real-time patch able to run on multi-processor systems for the first time. At which point SMP was still in its nascent stage, especially yes. Yes. even in the Linux kernel at least. That, that was actually one of my, I would say my one of my talents I had at the time was I really understood the concept of multi-parallel programming. I really could be able to see things and see locking and really, really easily, which was an advantage. And uh, that's when Ingo told me, like, would you like to work for Red Hat? You know, mm-hmm. that's, not only did it give me a t- trust, that was the moment that Ingo trusted me. Mm-hmm. And he asked me that. But I want to go back to what I learned about the real-time patch. When we started pushing things in the real-time patch, no one liked the real-time patch. It was a niche. They said, I don't bother me with it. So, to, But we needed the kernel to be clean because for a real-time project, you have to have a clean code base. And back in 2005, the Linux kernel was not a clean code base. It was really a lot of spaghetti code, a lot of cut-and-paste code. I mean, every architecture did interrupts by, say, taking, let's, I'll take the x86 interrupt handlers and copy into my architecture and then start tweaking. Mm. So a bug would be fixed in x86, but not be fixed in the next one. So uh, I remember Thomas Collection did a lot of work to make it into a single, well, put it, get out of the architecture code and make one code place. And now, and then it made all the other architectures be able to do interrupts easily. So a new architecture would come up and get interrupt handling really done quickly now. So it helped benefit the kernel. But the real reason why Thomas did this was because the real-time patch needed to modify that code. Hmm. And we couldn't modify it for each architecture. We only right. want to modify it in one place. So we actually, what we were doing, we were saying, we're, we're sending the Trojan horse. Hmm. And Linus once said to Thomas saying that, you know, I know what you're doing. Hmm. I know you're sending these little hidden packages or like you know, code things for you guys. But I, I accept that. I, I ignore that. And I accept your patches because every time you do that, you've made our kernel better. Hmm. And this is the point I want to come down to is if these people that want to get trust with the community, mm-hmm. you can't push your ideas into the kernel. It has to be pulled. Mm. So instead of saying, oh, I have the greatest code, I have this greatest feature, use it. It will be, it will be better. No. Tell them, like, what are you doing? Oh, by the way, you know, this code here will help you do this better. Or this code here will, well, hey, this code will improve this part of your code. Mm. And let them try it and always get the feedback, get the feedback. And then uh, that is where the trust is built. That's when the kernel maintainers will be like, oh, wait, this is useful for me. Or like you're, you're trying to help the maintainer um, make their job easier or make their code better. And when they see it, they pull it in. And when your next patch comes in, they pull it in. And we, the real-time patch did that, really focused on doing that. Uh, we never, in fact, actually, Ingle yelled at me once because I mentioned real-time. Like this helps real-time. And he, he sent me a private email. He's like, don't mention that because then they'll knack it. And they, mm-hmm. no, we have to, we have to sell this. At which that. point, I think it was called preempt or something. It was a preempt. It was, well, we had the preempt RT patch. Right. Actually, it was re- real-time preempt was the first name, I believe it was. I see. And then it came preempt real-time. It was, I can't remember how it switched. And then finally went dash RT. Uh, so we used to call it the dash RT. Yeah, dash RT was not, not until later. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, I think it was before 2006. Six? Around, that, yeah, around 2006, I think, was when we switched to dash RT. Because that's, that's when Ketchup was able to use it. I don't know if you remember the, the little script Ketchup. This is before Git. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, 2005 is when Git started, but still we had the patches and stuff like that. So uh, uh, we didn't put anything in Git, but we had you had the MM branch. You had a bunch of different people that just had these patches repositories all over the world. And uh, Ketchup was this thing written by Matt. Uh, Matt, I can't remember his last name. I don't want to say it because I don't want to mess it up here. So, you know, but you can look it up. Just the the Ketchup. It was, it was written in Python, and it was you could say actually you could do stables. Mm-hmm. That's how you did the stable thing. You, you could say Ketchup. Two six thirty two or dot one, and it would actually go and download all the patches uh-huh. and build uh, and give you and pa- apply all different versions to get you there. And when we made it to dash RT, he was able to add that, so you could say 
602-631-RT2, and it would download the RT patch as well and, hmm. and apply it to it. So you'd have to do anything. It, it would automatically reach these repositories and download and give you AY. Then, then you can make your build your kernel. Nice. So. Wow. Yeah, that seems like such a long time ago in terms <laughs> of technological progress uh, with Git. That's awesome. Okay, so we we I mean I had so many other questions. I think we touched upon it in in various ways. So just going back to that a little bit in terms of trust and so on. Do you think like you know most of the most of the opinion about Linux kernel communities it's merit based? You know it's just purely based on your work. And as you rightly pointed out, you know it's not just purely a patch or code, but it's also how you interact with people. Yes. But do you think, do you still think we, as a Linux community, we still deal with the cream of the cream set of people now that, you know, lots of companies also invest heavily into... I mean, I, I know some good people that were turned off by the kernel community for various reasons, and, and, and I, I don't blame them for some of the things. I mean, there's there's been history and stuff, although I, I say the kernel community has become much more professional. Mm -hmm. And at the kernel panel just a couple of days ago, I brought up a point I said, you know, there's always the oddball that's there. I mean, on, on a whole, the kernel community is actually very, works very well together. I mean, it works with new people, comes in very, very welcoming. It's actually very, very professional. But I said, any, if anyone who's had, ever had a large family, you always have that crazy aunt, <laughs> okay, or crazy uncle. Yeah. And we have those. Mm -hmm. And we have people that are, that can be mean. Mm -hmm. And actually, we've been, I mean, I know I'm a part of the you know technical advisory board for the Linux Foundation, and we've talked about if we see it, we will send an email privately to that person, mm -hmm. no matter what maintainer they are. We're not afraid to speak to anyone and say, you need to calm down. Now, some people point out Linus Travolts mm -hmm. himself, because he's had a lot of headlines about what he says. And it's funny because you don't understand, he talks to, he's on the mailing list every single day, and he talks to everyone, and he doesn't care you who you have. And it's just every so often, yeah, he, he's... He's got, he could be hard to work with sometimes, and that's just his personality. And, but most of the cases, he's very, very professional. And he's also someone that, you know, he'll say, I'll never do that. But then you show him some evidence that you sh he should do that, and he'll, he'll just do it. Mm -hmm. You know, and then be quiet about it. But still, he, mm -hmm. he's, you could bend his mind. But the funny part was back in, I think it was the 90s, okay, the late 90s or so. This is before I started 20, I was, I, I my kernel development was with academic. Mm -hmm. I'm not, and I was never, I wasn't employed for, kernel development at all. And I was trying to get my ThinkPad uh, working. I, the floppy drive wasn't working. And I sent an email to LKML saying, hey, you know, I found this bug. I mean, I can't, I, I'm trying to figure this out. I, I, I'm trying this. This kind of works, but it doesn't. Linus replied to me and said, could you try this patch? Hmm, nice. And I, I'm like, I was floored. I'm like, oh my God, Linus Travolz is just the one that's replying to me. So I applied the patch and, I, and it didn't work. And I sent it back. It was like back and forth, like 12 patch or 12 emails going back and forth. I'm like, oh my God, I'm actually, you know, interacting with the creator of Linux. Hmm. And he got my ThinkPad working. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, I mean, like those people don't hear about those stories about him, hmm. you know, and he still does that today. You know, he, he, he will email anyone. If there's someone that's, you know, sends out something, he'll, he'll help. He's there to help. He's a, he's a programmer. You know, he's not a manager, although he's doing a lot of managerial work, but he's a programmer and he, he that, you know, he's passionate about it. Mm. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, it definitely comes through, but people have to actually mm -hmm. uh, have the open-mindedness to look for it, I guess. Okay. So switching to your personal preference now okay. uh, in terms of uh, tools you use and so on. Yeah. What is your favorite editor? Actually, I would love to say Joe. That's but That's a friend of mine. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, actually, it's funny. Um, I know this is the Emacs versus Vim war and all that. 
Um, I always say use the right tool for the right job. And it's funny because I, I develop in Emacs. I do all my uh, development code in Emacs. I like the way it, the buffering handling, go jumping around, uh, modifying. Um, everyone tells me, oh, Vim could do the same thing. But I've watched people develop and they never use these things that Emacs does. So I, and everyone does Emacs, uses the Emacs thing. So I'm like, usability, I've noticed that people actually who do Emacs use the multi-buffers to jump around files and stuff like that. And you know, I still, I do builds within, if, if I'm doing user space tools, I'll do my make and everything within it. It's an IDE, you know, everyone says it's, you know, Emacs is an operating system. It just has a, it just lacks an editor. <laughs> and, and to a point, I understand that. But the funny part is I use Vim a lot. Hmm. And I use Vim for all um, modifications of uh, config files. Anytime it's just a single file. Single file. And I'll, I'll even pull up a C file code yeah. and do some coding in Vim just on a C file. Because I find it's quick, and especially if I SSH someplace, I only use Vim. Hmm. Um, because it's always available there. No, the no, 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 no. It's actually because I like Windows version of, or, or um, Emacs for me, I don't like I don't like the terminal Emacs. Hmm. I, I just can't stand terminal I Emacs. I see, I see. I like to have the window because it has a better features, and, and I like the colors that it gives me. Whereas if I have to SSH and I only have a terminal, I don't want to bring use X up, I use Vim hmm. only. And I don't mind using them. And, and I, I don't believe one's better than the other. I just, to me personally, there's things I find Emacs does much better. And there's things I find Vim that does better. And when I'm doing one of those tasks, I pick the, the, the tool that I think I get the most productivity out. Absolutely. Makes sense. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely with you on that. I use Emacs for whenever I find myself writing something of a bigger code base yes. or, or something of a bigger program. But anything for a quick, quick, dirty substitution or quick change in a file, I find Vim to be more handy, for sure. And I also like, you know, do much more on Emacs than just change right. code, uh, check my email. Right? Well, I, I know people that do that as well. Actually, like I said, I, I don't do that. Right, right, fair enough. So what's your favorite hack on, uh, since you said you use Emacs, uh, what is your favorite uh, productivity hack, if you wish? What do you keep finding yourself going back to? What is your... You know, Maybe within Emacs, like within Emacs, what is the tool or what is the trick that you use? It does not have to be unique to you, but no, no, no. I mean, know. well, it's it's. I, I just open up and I don't do anything too much. I like the block. The block cut is um, where you do column block right. cases. I've used that quite a bit, uh, especially when I cut and paste patches. I just go through and get rid of all the uh, the pluses or right. from one shot. Uh, but the well, I like E tags, but then them has C scope, you mm -hmm. know. And actually, I don't know how to use C scope. But I know how to use uh, E tags, um, although they're they're making it obsolete. And for this other thing where I tried this other thing, I haven't been able to figure out what uh, it is. G tags or something? There's like a Helm G tag or something. I can't remember. All I know is was when I first went to do it, it aired and said, this is obsolete now. I went, but you could throw in, I, I searched the internet to find how to get back. Mm -hmm. And, but there, it's like, oh my God, this is not going to be supported. And the, like, I'm going to be really, really upset. Mm -hmm. Like, it's the key, like, I'm, like the, a way like um, I can't tell you which key is it because I just know my fingers know it. I can't hear. Right, right. It's just muscle memory at that point, yeah. And uh, so that's um, that's why I like to use them. I, I depend on e tags uh, tremendously with the Linux kernel, especially if you're jumping around functions and you have to find functions that will jump you to the next function. Mm -hmm. So I use that constantly, especially for debugging, especially if I have a stack trace. And that's how I go to the next you know function, the next function, the next function, to find out what happened. And by the way, side note, I also use a Dvorak layout. I don't use QWERTY. Oh, I see. <laughs> so, okay, I was going to come to that. Yeah. Uh, 
have you switched at some point later uh, after using a lot of QWERTY? What, what is, how would you say? Actually, um, what happened was uh, a guy here, it was actually uh, at Times, worked for Timesys, and uh, Scott Wood, who uh, actually wrote the Timesys kernel, mm -hmm. uh, he's one. He's here. He's actually now works for Red Hat. He actually he replaced me. When I left Red Hat, I got mm -hmm. him the job at Red Hat to actually do what I was doing at Red Hat. So I see. Uh, the guy is uh, a brilliant man. And I remember when Timesys, uh, uh, it was funny because the first time we met him, or he were not. One of the first times we met him, and he came down, and uh, he went to use the typewriter, or someone asked him, "Could you help me?" He went over to the person's computer, he started typing, and it sounded like a machine gun went off. <laughs> that like whoa! And then he looks up and went, "Darn, QWERTY!" And then he started typing, <laughs> and I'm like, Wait, "What do you mean?" And then after after he left, we're like, "Wow, I've never seen anyone type so fast." And someone said, "Yeah, that was on QWERTY. You should see him on Dvorak." <laughs> so he learned Dvorak. So first we're doing that, and at the time I was starting to get carpet tunnel. This is also I was going, I was finishing up my master's. And I was starting a carpal tunnel on my wrist. My, I was getting strong pain in my wrist. And, and um, I read somewhere that one of the solutions for pain, wrist pain is to type in Dvorak. Oh, really? Okay. Because the Dvorak layout is made so you don't move your fingers very much. And today I do both. I actually, I still type in QWERTY. I still type in Dvorak. Or I, I Mostly on Dvorak, but I still learn. I still can type QWERTY, and whenever I go back to QWERTY, I, my fingers feel like they're doing finger aerobics. Mm -hmm. With QWERTY, my fingers hardly leave the main key, because mm. it's made, I won't go into the whole history of that. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, makes sense. Okay, so what's your, uh, what's the common shell that you use? What do you mean common shell? Bash. Bash, yeah. Yes. Okay. Okay. okay, and what's your favorite hack on, on the Bash, if there's any? What do you find yourself keep using? I mean, using? control R. <laughs> to redefine previous things, although I've been, I've noticed that if if sometimes I get too quick and do a control R, type a few keys, hit enter without looking what came up. <laughs> and I've removed directories accidentally by doing that. Uh, I have to be careful, but no, that's like for for then one thing I do, I tell you right now is the bash compute completion. Mm -hmm. I like the file bash completion, but people have gotten too overzealous with adding because now you every utility could do a bash completion, and it really annoys me when I'm like I'll type make and I'll type a file something or I'm looking for a file or something like that because I do make with o, capital O equals you know slash to right. to do this and I hit tab and it doesn't do it. It starts it takes forever. And I'm like, what? The? And it won't give me a file completion. It's yeah. inside the make file. I'm like, stop that. So yeah. actually, I've disabled that on a lot of things. Git is horrible with it because there's a time, it's gotten better. So I haven't, I haven't disabled it recently on some of my new machines, but because I don't have made my machines are faster, but I'll type git and I'll put in a file name because I always doing git grep or something like that. And I hit tab and now it's, it's actually looking at the, it's actually looking at the git hiss, like the mm -hmm. logs. And that takes a huge, like, you know, 10 seconds sometimes. And when I just want to file, I'm like, come on, come on, come on. Come on. Mm -hmm. Like, what the heck's going on? That's that's one of the annoying things about Bash, though. But I sometimes turn out. But Bash completion, I always love. Okay, fair enough. Uh, so, Eva, that was, that was my next question. What is your favorite source code repository management software? Well, obviously, it's going to be Git. Um, mm -hmm. Before, well, I still use Subver uh, sub Subversion. Subversion. Mm -hmm. I still actually have Subversion. And um, it's just because the central location of it is backed up nicely. And I already have it backed up. This is before Git came back. This is something in I have a repository called Ccrap. <laughs> that it's basically anytime I want to like play like you no, know, just okay, I have to implement few texts. So I'll write some source code that implements does a, a simple case and I throw it to my Ccrap repository and I do but SVN, you know, add this file and SVM commit. Boom. It's just it's not it's I don't do merges, I don't do it's just a repository I dump stuff into and I don't care about history, I don't care about anything, it's just 
it's a good place to start. But Git, for any other thing else, I always use Git. And okay. uh, I like um, uh, Linus's Torvalds. Uh, I think there's, oh, someone told me there's an ext Git or something, or something, there's a new file that does this. But I remember I go into my Etsy directory and type Git commit. So whenever I do an update, it, if it modifies any file, or, you know, a distribution update, any files that touches in Etsy, Git will show its differences. And then I can always, so I can always go back and revert stuff that uh, update might have messed up. Oh, I see. Interesting. I did not know that. Okay, cool. And what is your uh, favorite Git-related alias or hack if you use any? Well, actually, I wrote some of my own scripts. I have this Git ls that gives me a um, reverse list of all the uh, Git branches in my repository so I could see what I've, what I've been working on recently. The mm. uh, reason why, because I'm a Git branch hoarder. I have over 500 Git branches Whoa. in my repository. Well, because everything I've ever worked on and I've made a branch for it, I don't delete. And I, I have like version one, version two, version three, version four for like if I'm doing like a new uh, trace points functionality mm -hmm. or F trace functionality, I'll have different versions of it. And I never delete them. I'm like, yeah, why, why delete them? Hmm. But are you able to mentally keep track of what version one means? Or well, no, no. Ver you use no, a description? No, well, no, I just, oh, no, I, I know what I'm working on, but I just, what I, before, it's usually, version one usually me, it's not something that has ever been released. It's usually, okay, I'm working on something, and then then suddenly I have to rebase. So usually when I do a rebase to on another thing, I just save that as version one, and I do the rebase, and then continue the work on version two. Hmm. And then I, whenever, so basically each version isn't really, I mean, it's, it's, I, it's just a stopping point where I rebase to the latest kernel again, and then I work again. And when it goes, so some, some of these things I work on could take months that I work on, because I, I, I'm not working on one at a time. It's like, you know, oh, I have a few hours to work on this, so I'll go work on this. And then I'll forget about it. But, you know, in the next couple of weeks later, a new kernel releases, or I'm, built, I'm working on a new version of the kernel, and I'm not going to work on the old version, so I do a rebase. So at that point, I say version, I just branch version one, now rebase, and then now it's version two. Hmm. And I just keep doing that. Okay, interesting. So what is your um, setup, like machines to, that you use commonly, or the, what is your desktop, if you have any, or what's your laptop like? Um, my home machine that I have my office, and actually the Lynx Foundation has, uh, you know, 30 kernel developers, workspaces thing, and 30 years. I'm one of them, and um, my, you could go online and search Steve Rosted desktop or workspace or something, and you'll see it. And it hasn't changed much since. I have my, I'm in the basement. I have my own office in the basement. Right outside the office, I have my workout area. I do karate and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, my workout room is out there. And um, inside, I have all my machines in the back. I have lots of machines. They're not powerful machines. Some of them are powerful, but some of them are just old machines that I just bought a new machine. This now becomes my test box. The old, so um, so that's happened a few times. I have uh, development machines from Intel and AMD. And so I have a bunch of machines that I have, and I have um, a KVM switch hooked mm -hmm. to it. From the video, I got a new KVM switch that uh, is much better. I have, uh, and I have these two cords that go like 50-foot VGA cords that go all the way up around my wow. office. It comes down because my desk is on one wall. The, uh, my the computer's on the other wall and so, behind me and everything else comes or, uh, all the wires have to go around the walls to come down. I have a uh, extended USB cable for the USB to come up over the ceiling and comes down because you know the, uh, the wireless, I still have a wireless keyboard and a wireless mouse but uh, it's a little bit, keeping it behind me I lose connections uh, very mm -hmm. quickly so I have a wire that comes all the way up over so it's hanging right by my desk so it's, it still connects uh, wirelessly there. Uh, so I have two monitors one monitor is my main workstation that I SSH to everything else and do all my work from that workstation. So actually, I don't really work on the, the machine that's connected to, but actually, I SSH to all the other machines I'm on. 
Uh, then another monitor actually connects to all the other machines. And actually one of the machines is my work machine. So I actually have that monitor up always on my work. So I always connect to, within VMware mm-hmm. or when it was Red Hat, it was Red Hat before, but now it's VMware. And so that's why I have two setups. For that's cool. Work. That's cool. And would you, uh, you know, is there any dream setup uh, in addition to this that you would like to add? I wish I had someone that could come clean in my office. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's my office is such a mess, and it's actually worse than the video. Mm-hmm. And if you watch the video, you'll you'll definitely understand what I mean by that. Okay, okay, I'll, I'll definitely add that in the show notes. So, what are the favorite? If you had to name any three favorite uh, books, technical or otherwise, do you have any in mind? Technical books. Um, I actually mentioned this in the kernel kernel panel the other day at the Open Source Summit, and it was actually something I had said. If you're going to work technically. Richard Stevens books. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's definitely, uh, I think I've learned a lot from his work. I mean, it's sad that, you know, he left us Mm -hmm. at a young age, Uh, but he really inspired me. And I, I, and I would say, well, I, I, there's two books I have. And actually I think there's three of them. I think there's volume one, volume two. Mm -hmm. Um, I haven't looked at them recently. I should, it's been several years, but there's the Unix uh, networking one. And then there's the systems Systems programming one. And both of them, um, I've read them both cover to cover. I think I've read them more than once. So I, those are the ones that definitely stand out. Uh, what was the, for a non-technical book, I'm just thinking, I was just... It does not have to be oh, three. Three is just... I two. know. But I'm going to say the one book I really love for non-technical is Shogun. Shogun. Yes. Okay. And, uh, it's, uh, I, I, I like the Japanese history and, uh, you know, for, and the whole, it's, the book is uh, just, uh, of all the books I've ever read, I've read, you know, I mean, I've read like Lord of the Rings and stuff like that, but I, I was really inspired by uh, Shogun. It, it was, I really enjoyed that book. Okay. Awesome. All right. So switching gears a little bit into a different type of questioning. So when you are faced with a big problem, technical problem, when you're solving a big technical mm-hmm. problem, what is your, do you employ any known mental models or any known tools? Like, let's say, uh, to give you an example, a lot of people use Emacs is uh, mind map in the org mode. Again, just one of those things that people tend to use. Or there are lots of other uh, other techniques or tools that people end up using, which works for them. Uh, do you have any of that sort? Anything that comes to mind? Or do you just take notes? Or do you like writing block diagrams first to think of problems better? Uh, what I actually do, um, I mean, I've done notes before, but actually, because I was just actually thinking about this the other day, when I look at a very difficult problem, uh, if I want to create a new project or if I want to rewrite something, no, I don't use any tools. What I do is I, ta- I just think about the problem and I start breaking it up into pieces because every difficult problem there is, is a lot of simple ones. And I start looking at the simple ones and I'll write, remember that C crap thing I told you? A lot of those files in that C crap directory were starting stages for things in ftrace, things in the real-time kernel, things mm. in there. I'm like, okay, I know I need this functionality. Let me see what, how this functionality works. Mm. Uh, right now I'm working on something uh, for trace command for virtual for server where I have, I want, my goal is this, is to have a, uh, every guest run an agent. So the trace command will kick off an agent that connects to a, a host proxy. And then the host proxy would just sit there. And then on the host, I could sit, talk, I could connect to the proxy and tell, and it will tell me what guests are, are connected. And then from the host, I could say, okay, kick off tracing on this guest, kick off tracing mm-hmm. on this guest. 
and kick off this, and it will send the uh, uh, all the information to the guy who kicked it off. And one thing I need to do is how to pass file descriptors mm. from one process to another process, not threads, mm. processes. So I'm going to connect to this guy and actually be able to say, pass me over a file descriptor. And there's a way. I searched it. There's a way. I can't remember exactly. I think I have a send message. I can't remember the exact way of doing it. It's in my secret mm-hmm. code. So I wrote something. Okay, I'm going to need this functionality. And I'll do that. So I do a lot of functionality and I break it up that way. And once I get a good concept of these smaller blocks, blocks I start building on top of them. That's when the project comes together. Mm-hmm. So it's always I break it down into a bunch of small little features I need. And I start trying to learn those features very well and have co- sample code that I could cut and paste into a bigger project. And then I slowly build up from there until then once these things get together, then it actually becomes very easy. Yeah. That's awesome. That's, that's yeah, that's definitely worked for, uh, you know, work for literally every big topic, you know, you break it down into smaller chunks and it becomes easier to understand, becomes easier to yep. imagine and work with. And, and, and yes. I'm a big fan of object oriented design. I'm not going to say, I don't use C++. I, I, I've done it in the past, but I remember back in the ni- early 90s, like 92, 90, or no, yeah, 92, 93, around that time, when object-oriented programming was becoming a huge deal. C++ mm-hmm. was just coming out, and everyone was talking about this. I'm like, what is this object-oriented programming thing? Because It was in my school. I already graduated. So it's anything I learned had to be from books and everything else. And I kept saying, what's this object-oriented programming? And it's funny, because at the time, we had this project that we had to do, and um, they, uh, they were laying out, we knew, I kind of knew what the, what the project had to be, but we didn't have any designs of how they wanted it implemented, hmm. uh, per se, the, the architecture wasn't there. So I started writing code and my task lead said, Steve, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm writing code for this project. And they said, we don't have the design yet. How are we writing code? But I'm like, okay, but I know we're going to need this feature. I'm going to, this is the start of the C crap. <laughs> okay. I said, I know this, we need this feature. So I would write this feature and I would write this feature and write, and I abstracted everything out. And then when they finally got the design, I already had all the functionality that was needed written. And I just had to put them out again. And within like five days, they, they said, okay, this is going to be about a month and a half. In five days, I had a fully functional, it was basically done. Nice. And when I was like, How'd you do that? I'm like, well, it, I had all these objects and I just kind of, well, I didn't say objects. I had all this, these features done. And I just put them together. And I'm like, I didn't realize I was writing classes mm. at the time in C at the time. I was right. actually implementing class programming and that's object oriented programming. And I, I really, uh, Ftrace, one thing I really love about Ftrace and is it's very module. That's right. Okay. The real, the ring buffer is a separate unit. Anyone can use it. The trace events, anyone can use it. Perf jumped on and it uses it. Right. TTNG, it right. uses it. I break everything up. I don't have any like monolithic type of thing where this depends on this, depends on this. I hate that type of programming. Hmm. Um, I want everything to be like uh, full containers that could, like, you know, objects that could talk to other objects. And mm-hmm. that's the way Aptrace has been designed. That's the way Trace Command has been designed. I wish that was the way Kernel Shark was, but I, was la- I wasn't really lazy, but I was trying to just get it working really quick and I didn't do that. And mm. now actually one of the projects I'm trying, having Bulgaria do is uh, break it up and make it modular. <laughs> mm. Nice. Nice. That's that's awesome. So another common response from other people is uh, they just talk out about about the problem and they try to explain what they understand to, to a rubber duck mm-hmm. and or, or anything else to their plant or uh, anything else. And, you know, they come across like, oh, this is a 
problems I did not think of or there is a case I did not think of and so on. Perfectly fine. And I, while you make these features, do you test them as you go or, you know, what is your approach to testing? Like, do you test them when you write a small function or functionality? Do you test it right away or do you have these pieces come together and then write like higher level tests? No, I'm actually more test as a go. That's actually the part of the coding I hate mm-hmm. when I don't know if what I'm writing actually works. Mm-hmm. And I've actually written stuff like that. I'm like, I'm spending a week on this code and I have yet to see if my thoughts on how this works will actually, you know, come together. And my, cause I, I go in, I'm like I'm so scared that I'm going to hit a wall or roadblock that I didn't think about beforehand. Mm-hmm. And once I, once I could get it to actually, I could compile it and boot it on a kernel and, or a tool and just execute it. I make sure it works. I mean, my C-crap thing is all about, does this feature work? Hmm. You know, it's, I test it. I, I, a little bit here, a little functionality. Does that work? And I, yes, I constantly make sure I'm going in the right track. And then once I get a feature, well, I'm like, okay, let's, let's hit it a little bit harder and let's see if I could find anything I couldn't understand before. Hmm. So yes, I actually do that a lot. And do you keep going back to that C-crap and, and, you know, mentally refresh your memory about, you know, something that you tried out a while back? No, it's, 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 to me, it's my memory. Hmm. Uh, I don't just go back and look at the code like, oh, let me see what's, what I'm doing. It's usually what happens is when I go to something, because I have that stuff in there, I'd, I couldn't, I couldn't write today. I mean, hmm. I mean, I couldn't go back and just tell me, write it. I'd actually, I'd have to go and relearn it all hmm. over again. Mm-hmm. But I know it's there. It's in my, what's called SVM directory. Uh, and I always have it. So it's on all my machines. Hmm. And it's backed up very, very so well. So it's a quick reference or... It's like, okay, I I need to know how to, like, how, like, mapping. Okay, I haven't mapped a file in a while, you know, anonymously. Uh, how, how's it going? Instead of you have to look at, man, I don't look at the man pages. I mean, that's how I usually do it. I look at man. I'm like, oh, wait, I, I just do a search of my, you know, file. Find, oh, here's a file that does it. Go, okay, there it is. Cut and paste the code. Boom, throw mm-hmm. it in. And I, mean, I know the concepts. I already learned it. This is all code that I wrote. I right. don't, uh, don't put other people's code in. Although, actually, I have taken cut and paste from other people that's GPL stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, well, this is someone has a useful utility. And I'll take it and I'll build off of theirs. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's that's awesome. I mean, in, in some shape or form, I have done that, but I've not done a good job of keeping all of them in a single repository. Maybe I should start doing that. I mean, they are sprinkled all over my machines. Maybe yeah. it's a good time to... Just, uh, just do it in one, one directory. Like I say, I call it C-crap because it's, just, it's, it's crap code. <laughs> it's a lot of this stuff is really, really... I mean, it's, I have a file called blah.c, you know, and those are those, those are those when I just want to say, what happens if I do this? So mm-hmm. I will like, oh, this, I can mess with the stack, tr- stack on this, this guy, well, let's see what happens. I, those codes are, isn't really trying to do a feature, but trying to, what happens if I break, mm-hmm. you know, try to do something that wasn't meant to be done and see what happens out of it. Mm-hmm. And you adorn them with, with comments of, of what you were thinking at that point? Okay. But Maybe I should, but no, I don't. Right. Right. Because especially since you said food.c, I have like a bunch of try.c, try1.c, food.c. Again, something similar in, in idea, but... Uh, um, no, because it's usually the C, if it would, it's usually done because of a conversation being done and say, wait, you know, what happens if this happens? And mm-hmm. I'll go in and say, okay, let's see. Or I'll write something like, let's say I'll mess up the memory this way, or I'll call a function. You know, I'll say, okay, let's see what happens. Like, here's a simple example. What happens when I call, uh, you know, a function, if I do a prototype of three parameters and I only send it to, or, you know, send it to, although right. you know, I make another parameter. So, you know, make it so I can compile and jump right. it in. Actually, believe it or not, a lot of the, uh, some of the, these crazy things is mcount. 
if you're familiar mm-hmm. with M-Count, yep. which is how F- Which is basically your trampoline for <clears throat> your yes. funk craft. I have a lot of M-Count stuff in my uh, C-Craft directory. Nice. Nice. So, <clears throat> okay, now I know where, you know, how that came about or how the thought behind that came yes. about. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Because I definitely remember very vividly about M-Count and... In fact, there was a small presentation that another uh, kernel programmer and I did, a friend of mine, um, and we presented specifically about how F-Trace works in, yeah. in order to use the trampoline. Uh, that's awesome. And, okay, on the public mailing lists, I never seen you, at least, my me personally have not seen you curse or be super angry. Is that something that's, like, you know, a part of your personality? Or do you do something like, you know, you consciously try to stay calm. Uh, very, I mean, there are a few people who are really nice and you're, you're super patient with especially simple questions. Uh, so how do you, what's your mental thought process? I, I, I don't get frustrated with simple questions. Uh, I've been there and I vividly remember being there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like when I see someone ask a question, I always, and I, I've actually, uh, Thought other people who tried to like, oh, they should know that. I'm like, no, you know, they're they're learning, um, and I really appreciate. I like, okay, let me see if the person can learn, you know. And um, I never look at it and say it's stupid. You're being stupid. Um, I just think, you know, you're ignorant. Hmm. You know, that's not a bad thing. We're all ignorant. We don't ignorant just means that you don't know something, but you can learn it. Mm-hmm. That's how you become non-ignorant. So you're learning. So I've actually only flamed one person. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say who. And that took a month of back and forth, and the person was not learning. Mm. And it got to a point where it had nothing to do with the code. It had to do with the person just not listening. Mm. Not. And I found that I was wasting too much time. Mm. And I was actually saying, you know, I, I just finally said, no, I said, no, you're actually not. You're just being stupid. Mm. I mean, it's not ignorant anymore. It's just you're being stupid. You're not learning. You don't have the, you're, or I don't know, either you don't have the ability to learn. I did it to one person. That was after a month of trying. And other than that, I don't find, okay, uh, some people who are, you know, it wasn't just not just being ignorant, but when, another thing is when people ask questions and they don't listen. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is one of the biggest things that really upset most kernel developers and the people that really mean that, that that's, that's the trigger. Mm-hmm. When someone actually takes time, I've never seen anyone just come up and say, hey, how do you do this? They'll either ignore you if mm-hmm. they don't want to do mm-hmm. anything, or if they try to talk to you. No one ever goes after you hard if you just go ask us a question. Um, well, quote, unquote, stupid question. You'll ever, what happens is if you go and say, hey, this, and someone goes and answers it to you, and then, or, or if you show a patch and like, hey, I want to do this, and they say, no, you can't do it this big way because of that, that, and that. And then you go and you send another patch, ignoring everything the person said, and still do it. Yeah, that can... Because, you know, maintainers are busy. Yeah. And they actually took time out to give you time to explain to you why something doesn't work. I mean, it's different if you say, wait, I don't understand what you, if you turn back, I don't understand why you say this. And it's still going, you're still trying to learn. But if you just ignore the person or just say, no, that's not right. And don't do it. That's when some of the maintainers will curse. That's basically, you're not respecting the time of other people who are trying to help you. Whether you mean it or not, your actions are indicating that you're not respecting the time of the other person. And I just want to go off on the whole thing where people always say, like, I've heard time and time again that, you know, if this happened in, um, you know, my company or in a company, a company setting, they wouldn't, you, you know, they'd be fired mm-hmm. if someone yelled at someone like this. And I, I said, you never worked at Lockheed Martin with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to say anything, but when I was there, 
I've heard much worse from mm. managers. Uh, yeah, they curse, they insult, um, degrade. I've seen all that. Mm. And that's within a company. It's actually a military, a very well-respected company. But, you know, when things, you know, when you're, you're when, when the company is about to lose, a, you know, you know, maybe $500 million, they swear. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and to be fair to Lockheed, it's, it's all over the industry. It's yes, not, yes, it's not yes. specific. So, no, I'm company. saying that that's, that's the biggest company. Well, I worked for IBM, but that was like the biggest company where I've seen it at. Right. Um, and that's why I said it. I'm like, no, you're small companies. Yeah, maybe small company. You know, one person said, you know, I worked, I've owned this company for 20 years and I have like, you know, 20 so employees. I've never, never had a swear at all. And I told my, I told that person, it was on the LWN comment, something like that. And I told that person, excuse me, do you hire everyone, everyone off the street? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good metric. You. you have to understand the Linux kernel, anyone with a computer and internet connection can join you. Right. And anyone could be annoying. Mm -hmm. And there's no, they said there's no HR. Yeah. Yeah. This person will be fired, but there's no way to stop someone. If someone's being wrong in a business thing, you could fire them. You right. could give them off your project. There's no way to stop someone from contributing to an open source project. That's a good analogy. All right. Uh, just got a last few here. Do you have any daily routine that you stick stick to anything you know what does your morning look like do you directly get onto checking your email or do you have like a workout routine i know yes. you said earlier yes I, I do have a workout routine i right. get up i do a, I, have a, I meditate i do a, a basic breathing katas and uh breathing methods for karate and then i actually practice some other things and mm -hmm. i do have a morning routine that takes about 45 minutes or so then i try to catch up on email um since I'm, you know, I'm on the East Coast, so a lot of my emails come from Europe. So I'm worried. As soon as I come in, I usually have maybe like 20, 25, 30 emails from Europe. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll go and try to catch up on that. And then I try to figure out what I want to work on that day. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm like, okay, this is what I need to work on. Or I just start planning out what I have to work on. And I'll start looking at it. Like today, I'm going, like, okay, I'm going to work on this part of F-Trace. Or maybe I'm going to do Trace Command. Or maybe I'll you know, try to do the stable releases and start doing stable releases. Or maybe I'll do backports and stuff like that. So that's basically just all I do for that. And um, I've gotten better. So, okay, my family, um, there's been times where I didn't, I, I just stay on weekdays. I work so many hours that I, you know, basically didn't see my family, but my wife was not very happy with me for doing that. Mm -hmm. So now I try, I have to always eat dinner with my parent, or my, my wife and my um, kids. You know, my kids are now in college, so it's just my wife mostly. And, um, but I've always tried to, you know, stop and make dinner and, and then sometimes I have to make dinner myself because my wife works at night. And, um, but during the day, um, then I'll either try to go for a walk or run. And also I have, um, here's one thing about being patient about, you know, like some people say I'm calm and like part of it is, is just my routine is helps this way. Cause sometimes I'll get frustrated, just not with anyone, but just with the work or I'm like reading stuff and I'm, I'm like, okay, my mind can't take anymore. Um, I own, Two and a half acres of land. I mean, that's one nice thing about being in a little town called New York or Endwell. That's where I live. And uh, I own woods. I actually have a creek. And there's been times like, you know, I'm going to spend 10 minutes, just go walk down, hang out by the creek. Nice. Just walking around, not thinking anything. Hmm. And um, uh, I don't know if you saw the real-time talk that I had uh, for the uh, SCED deadline mm -hmm. code. I said, there's a thing with the real-time with how IPIs work on large machines. Yeah. And I had a bunch of approaches and they all had issues and it got to the point where every, every time I fixed something, it caused like another issue that would, that was there. It was like whack-a-mole type of thing. Well, whack-a-mole type of thing. And I, I almost was like about to say, Oh my God, I can't solve this. And I said, screw it. I got, you know, my running gear on, I ran, you know, a 5k and just around the area. And I said, just forget about it. I just, just got clear. Mm -hmm. 
uh, I was coming up home and I, I have the last quarter mile is a very steep hill to my house. And so it's a tough man. The solution appears in my head. Nice. <laughs> it just came. I'm like, I was like, yeah. And it was so simple. In fact, I presented it three slides. Mm-hmm. I had three functions, one function per slide. It was readable with right. comments, mm-hmm. each of those slides. And that was the solution. Nice. That's how simple it was. And it deleted hundreds of lines of code for these three small functions. And I was like, and it works. Everything I can't find anything. That's what that's actually the presentation at the microconference. I said, it's just, do you see this is too simple? There's gotta be a, right. a right. Gotta I be remember a you said that, yeah. And that that happened on my run. So nice. So that's part of the routine, I guess. Nice. Yeah, that's that's basically in fact you helped me with the segue. Uh I was gonna ask, you know, does your routine help you with uh with with you know keeping a calm mind and so on. That that perfectly yes. answers the question. Um, awesome. So before uh, we kind of wrap it up, uh, one last thing. From the horse's mouth, what's your recommended way to start kernel programming? Uh, first of all, do you really want to? <laughs> I ask people that. Do you really want to? Uh, the reason why is uh, it really is has to be something you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you start kernel programming? Um, I tell people, well, I always say break it. Break the kernel. If you want to do a kernel development, we have virtual machines now. That's so easy. I didn't have that when I was coming up, you know, growing up or and learning kernel development. I actually had hardware. If I broke it, I could actually break the hardware. There's, mm-hmm. you know, back then, there, you know, hardware was actually easily to brick. Mm-hmm. I would say get a virtual machine, look in some source code. Oh, and if you want to learn, use Ftrace. In fact, I'm giving one of my talks yep. in, in in Paris next year at Kernel Recipes, or not next year, next or a couple of weeks at, in Kernel Recipes in Paris, is learning the Linux kernel via Ftrace. There's a lot of ways to see, like I said, the reason why Ftrace was created, or actually LogDev, the predecessor for it, was because I didn't like the black box. I wanted to see what was happening in there. I wanted to learn. And uh, I do that today. I, I still, if some subsystem I want to play with, whether it's networking or, say, if this device driver or something like that, I I kick off Ftrace and I start scanning it and I read what it does and then I go and look with the code open up and I'll look at the traces and I'll look at the code and I, I learn how that works there. Mm. If you want to make a change, you've got to actually find a change that you want to do. And, and this is where some people, different things work for different people. And right. if you want a, you know, get a device, you want to be a device driver, developer, you need a device, play with it. Uh, one, last night we were having a, a little buff about getting people started and they're talking about maybe making a virtual machine or something, FPGA or something like that, to say, hey, here, drive, write a driver, make it work. Or um, it would be great if like QMU had a a fake, um, like a foo networking card that was hmm. extremely simple hmm. that would just be for learning. So you could just say, hey, here's a foo memory card. There's no device driver in Linux at all, but you could go and write your device drive. Make that work. Hmm. You know, that that's one thing I would love that, you know, like to push to get something where we can write a device that's that has no driver for it, but a networking a virtual networking card of some kind that we can have a virtual machine do and have people learn how to create something then. Uh, it that's how you'd have to get started. You just have to get involved. You have to read. Um and be humble. I mean, you're you're not going to know everything. You're not going to understand anything. And don't tell people you know something that you don't. I just want, before we finish, I just want to say something. This is something I actually, it was really the hardest thing to do for me. Um, and I see it's really, really hard for others is, is to tell someone I don't know. Hmm. A lot of times I just stay quiet. And I'm like, okay, I don't know what this person's doing. And I'm afraid to say I don't know this because I feel I'm going to be stupid. I'm going to be, um, you know, people say, you don't know this? Hmm. And then I saw someone say, I don't know quite a lot. 
Mm. I just noticed it. This mm. person's saying, I don't know quite a lot. Andrew Morton. Mm. He says, I don't, uh, I don't understand this. And he goes, wait, read, tell me. He asks questions like that all the time. Says, I don't know what you're doing here. Tell me, like, why explain it better? And it's like, really, you don't know that, Andrew? But then I'm like, you know what? He doesn't know everything. Mm-hmm. But he's constantly asking that. And that's why he's one of the top maintainers, mm. because he's not afraid to ask that. And he gets people to explain it. And the funny part is, I found out later, well, usually a lot of times, I didn't know it. Mm-hmm. And, once, and that's why I've actually learned myself. I've stopped being afraid to say I don't know anymore. I, I tell people, it's something like, wait, wait, go back. What do you mean by this acronym? I never mm. heard it before. I, I don't know this. And I'll tell people that. And I have people come up to me saying, thank you for asking that question because I didn't know either. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the times, a lot of us are just bystanders and yes. like, oh, mm, maybe he knows. Maybe everybody else knows. Yeah. And I don't. It's like, yeah, you're like, I don't know. But you don't realize that everyone, there's like two people in the room that actually know. But everyone's thinking, everyone knows but me. Yeah. Yeah. That's almost never the case. That's a very good point. Before we part for the episode, is there, how how do people follow your work apart from looking at LKML or apart from looking at your patches? Is there, are you, are you active on social media or do you have any, any place where you want people to head over to? Okay. So here's a few plugs, I guess. Uh, one of the reasons why I hired that VMware is to help VMware get, you know, uh, be more involved in open source. And actually there's a blog. VMware has an open source blog and um, one of my job is to write blogs. There. Mm-hmm. And I've actually written several for them, I, I don't have the link that I can tell you, but maybe again, we can put it in the show notes. Show. But yeah, the VMware blog, I'm actually have to write some more there. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, I wrote, wrote some articles on uh, LWN, but I haven't done that recently. I just haven't had time. I on Google Plus every so often, if there's something, if there's a release, I'll try to post the release on Google Plus. I have a you know, Stephen Rosted is on there. Um, I don't do Twitter much, although I'm told I should. Uh, I don't like the forum, but like 140 characters is just crazy. Mm-hmm. I won't go there and. Yeah, that's the that's basically for if you want to follow like my work, it's basically uh, that and uh, I get repos and I actually I spend I think I spend more time giving talks. So um, I mean I should probably find all the links of all the talks because there's a lot of my talks that have been videotaped and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So I should probably go find a repository and put them together. Because I, I tell people you know people ask me oh what about K tests? Actually, that's another project that you know I work on. Uh, for the infrastructure which is in the kernel, and not many people know about it. And I'm like, I've given so many talks on it, but I need to find a way to spread that mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. But yeah, absolutely, I can look it up. But if you have, if you end up do, making the repo, I can put it up in the show notes for sure. Awesome! It's been absolutely great talking to you, Steve. Oh, uh, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, thank you so much again. Sure. Bye.